Hi, and welcome to Adoption, the journey of becoming chosen. My name is Emily Wells, and this is episode seven. This week's episode is called From Culture Shock to Culture Awakening. And I actually ended up changing the title last minute because that was more accurate to what I was talking about in this episode. And um, this has always been in the queue and it being released during this, what feels like a new civil rights movement feels just exactly right, like it was meant to be. Um, I'm going to be talking about my time spent in Lexington, Kentucky this week. And it also just so happens that a few friends from there started their own podcast. It's got the feel of kind of like a fun morning radio show and um, like a talk show and um, an engaging interview that goes along with it. And I was grateful to be on episode six of their show. It's called Everything But Also Nothing, and that perfectly describes the podcast. Um, And I'll put the link in the bio. So in the interview, I go into more details about how my mind has been transformed over the last eight years since being on Young Life staff. We're there for some laughs and hopefully some things that will make you think. So I moved to Lexington, Kentucky in 2012. I had no idea what was about it was about to be like. I had been to Lexington a few times when I was in college for Young Life, but that was honestly it. Um, I didn't know what side of town was what. I didn't know how big of a deal UK basketball was, which I now know is close to a sin, um, but I learned quickly. Uh, Anyway, I was taking my first job with Young Life and I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, as they say. I had all of these ideas of how the next few years were gonna be. I was going to be paid to do what I love most. What I didn't realize was that my entire life and perspective was going to be pushed and pulled to end up being closer to the heart of God. Um, In Young Life, if you're unfamiliar, we have a term called contact work. And it is the most important part of being a leader. As an organization, our foundation is built on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He went to where people were. He sat with them, listened to their stories, said some hard truths, and then quite literally gave up his life. And although the majority of Young Life staff and leaders won't be in a position to give up their lives, we do sacrifice time, money, energy, and plenty of other things to be in the world of kids. And speaking on behalf of myself and so many, it's truly the most rewarding thing I've ever done. I think it was like my first week and I didn't know anyone. So I went to do some contact work and ended up at a sixth grade girls volleyball game. So I walked into the school, wasn't really sure where to sit and figured it out. And then saw a few girls that I had met earlier in the lunchroom a few days before. Um, And as I sat there, I looked around and realized I was in the bleacher section that was full of parents and grandparents and students. And there were probably less than 10 white people in the entire gym. Um, Now, if you remember, it wasn't too long ago in my life that I didn't even identify with being Korean. And I felt like people assumed that I was white for a lot of different reasons. But in that moment, I didn't really have many thoughts. It was just more of an observation. Um, But later that night, it started to set in. Um, that I knew that I grew up at a school that was 98% white, went to college, and then worked as an adult for 25 years in that same town. 
But at that volleyball game, it hit me that this was how I grew up, but it's not how everyone else grew up. And it was like I had found this loose string on a shirt and started to pull and things just began to unravel all in a good way. You know, what came next was a lot of self-reflection, correction, apologies, humility, mind opening, and a complete heart change. And some of the stories I'm going to share are good ones. And then some that I'm going to share, I'm not so proud of. And they're the ones that keep me humble and keep me fighting to do better today than I did yesterday. Um, It's instead of like internalizing it as shame of like a mistake, I try to use that as motivation, like firewood to just like keep going and keep doing my best to do better. Um, I realized like over time that growing up, I had a lot of racist stereotypes, biases about poverty and wealth and fears of people who were different than the community I had grown up in, which um, I thought was normal. I thought, this is just how the world is. This is how everyone thinks. This is how people act. I didn't know there were any other ways to see the world or like any other perspectives. And after I found myself at this volleyball game, I kind of had these two thoughts. One was, wait a second, why did I never know that African-American people, Asian people, Hispanic and Latinx people were like me and that I was like them, just like normal people here, not the stereotypes of people I saw on TV or on the news or heard about. And then the other side of me was like, ignore that, don't think about it. I saw all the ways I hadn't been able to see the previous 25 years. And so this unraveling process just continued, sometimes faster than I was even comfortable with. Um, I think it was like the next week I went into the lunchroom, which is normal for young life leaders. And I met a group of boys. Um, it was Joe Kwan, Taekwon, Raekwon, and Jaquan. And I made a joke that I would later realize was incredibly racist. I said something flippantly about their names all being similar. And, um, I don't remember exactly what it is, but because of the racism in my own heart, I made a joke that took away from each of these boys um, who were individuals and I clumped them together, not taking the time to see them as their own identity. Um, You know, I grew up seeing that and I participated in it and now I had further subjected them to what they already knew, that people in the world didn't see them, not, not as individuals at least. And I thought later, like, how would that have been different? How could that interaction would have been different if I would have met four kids named Kelly, Molly, Sally, and Emily? Um, Because to me, I had decided that those were, quote, normal names. But like I shared a few episodes ago about how white supremacy means white is supreme, This is just a small example of that. I had decided that they were different. Those boys were different rather than that I was different. I was a weekend and I had already decided that everyone who had lived there for likely their entire lives were the different ones, where in reality, I was. And it makes you wonder, why was I able to be so quick to stereotype someone? I've shared in previous episodes how I have been asked about my real parents and asked if I knew why my mom didn't want me. 
I knew how it felt to be stereotyped, to be asked painful questions, ones that would like stick with you until adulthood. But how was it so easy for me to be racist to someone when I had experienced racism? I mean, the number of times I was pulled over and asked, where are you from? Or do you live around here? Are too many to count in my, and all of those in my hometown, most of those in my hometown, by the way. Um, the place that has all my memories before I was 25 years old. Um, I've recently learned that uh, being pulled over for 45 to 60 minutes isn't actually normal. On average, that's how long I would end up sitting waiting on the side of the road if I got pulled over. And every time I'd get pulled over, um, it would be the same thing. I would be asked to give them my license, which I would. And then about 10 or 15 minutes later, they would come back and ask me for my social security number. So I gave that to them. And sometimes I don't even get asked about my license. They just straight ask me for my social security number. And because I didn't know any better, I gave it to them. And now I realize that I was being profiled as an immigrant without papers and they were doing a background check. And when my license when my license panned out, it was like they wanted to double check to make sure I didn't have like a fake or someone else's ID. And so the social security would be the next checkpoint. I've also been pulled over by ICE before and they didn't care about my license or registration or insurance. All they wanted was my social security number. Um, another time I got pulled over because I had the seatbelt like underneath my left arm. And by the way, I got a $90 ticket for that. And the officer wrote white on my description. And I later had like told a friend about it. And she said, I mean, maybe he meant it as a compliment. And I remember being like, is that what you think of me? Like, it's a compliment to be confused as a white person, whereas being Asian would be an insult. And I didn't say anything. And she probably doesn't even remember that conversation. But um, it was something that I have always remembered. Um, you know, the number of times I was told my accent was good or congratulated me on not having one at all which I wouldn't other than something that was Midwest or Southern because I grew up in Southern Indiana and lived right across the river from Kentucky. Um, I was asked if I have been asked like, can I touch your hair? And a lot of times that people wouldn't ask, they just touch my hair. And I remember a time when I asked a friend or a friend asked me um, if they could, if my hair was like hers. And I was like, I didn't really understand what she was even asking because I was so young. I was like, I mean, it's hair. It grows out of my head. So if that's what you mean, then yes. Um, and then in high school, I had a few good guy friends tell me they would never date an Asian girl to my face. Like they said that to me and I tried to laugh it off and be like, oh yeah, for sure. And in the inside, feeling every cell in my body, feeling like exploding death. And I think I cried for like a week after that. And I remember telling one of my friends and she said, I mean, but he didn't mean you, you aren't really Asian. And, you know, she meant well, but it doesn't mean it was good, you know? So what I experienced growing up was being treated one way because of how I looked, but at the same time, was being told that I wasn't really like other Asian people. It's like another question of like, where do I belong? And I know this is the feeling so many kids feel, something you have felt regardless of if you've been adopted or not. 
But again, to have this feeling of not belonging, not looking like other people, not sharing blood with people I lived with, I was reminded over and over again that I was other, almost like I should be grateful to have been let into this country. And of course, most people didn't say that to me, but it began to feel like I was a guest in my own hometown, in a country where I was a citizen. But as someone who was adopted into a white family in a white town, I didn't have anyone to validate my experiences. And I can't remember the like number of times I wanted to say something, but didn't have any confidence that someone would believe me. Um, and the times I did speak up, I wasn't really believed or someone would try to make me, quote, feel better about not being too Asian. And I don't say that for pity. I say that because I grew up feeling like my perspective or my experience was invalid because I couldn't prove that it was true. I had no facts, just my experience. And I just think I constantly wondered, like, who would even believe me without these facts. And this is part of hardship, a hardship that comes when you are adopted into a white family and community as a non-white person. Do I love my family and community? Yes, that is not in question. But did I suffer silently because I didn't have anyone who looked like me to confide in or ask if I was crazy? Absolutely. I needed someone who shared my culture or something close to it to be a safe place to talk about these, what I would later learn are called microaggressions. And if that's a new word for you, it's defined as a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. And so basically, it's when you think, was that racist? Was that sexist? Was that... And the answer is typically yes, but you can't prove it. It would um, require the other person to be self-aware and educated to realize that they were treating you a certain way because of your gender or your sexual orientation or your race and so on and so forth. So what happens when you are treated one way for being different? You start to treat other people the way you've been treated. And we all do that in some ways. And I didn't see those boys for who they were, but I saw them as an other. I saw them for who they were in comparison to me. Not like in a I'm better than you comparing, but like in one of those games that has like two pictures that you're supposed to figure out what's different. I was thinking of all the ways they were different from me rather than just appreciating who they were and realizing that I was actually different from them. And when I moved to Lexington, um, another thing I started learning about was free and reduced lunch, which it's revealing about my upbringing um, to admit, I didn't really know what that was until I was like 25 years old. And I remember in elementary school, there were three types of lunch tickets, green, yellow, and red. And as you can imagine, green was kids who could pay for their lunch, yellow was reduced lunch, and red was free lunch. And I didn't know that at the time, but I remember thinking it wasn't good. It wasn't a good thing to have a yellow or red ticket. Like I knew that much. And when I reflect on that, I feel like that was such an unfair way to identify and stigmatize wealth or poverty at such a young age. 
Um, but my lack of cultural awareness caused me to go into savior mode when I was in Lexington. I thought it was my job to help, quote, these poor kids. Um, I would never have been able to see or admit at that at the time. Um, but I began treating kids as a charity case versus a human. And I found myself feeling really good about feeding them and taking them, talking to them about college and all of these other things that I felt like I grew up with that they didn't have. And sure, those are really good things, but I did it because I felt like they needed it and that I was doing them almost like a favor. And it's like, what a complex and how unfair to them really. And so over time that began to fade and I realized that feeling sorry for someone who grew up with less than I did was really stripping that person of their dignity. I wasn't loving them and caring for them. I was putting them in a box and like I did in the lunchroom, not allowing them to have their own identity. And I met this uh, group of girls who were in my car or at my house, probably five or se- five out of seven days of the week. Um, and I jokingly one time referred to myself as a soccer mom and they're like, what's that? And at first I kind of thought they were kidding. And as I started to try to explain, I, I realized again, I was projecting my own upbringing on them. Coming from a town where majority of families had two parents and one stayed home, majority of the time being the mom, who would do the millions of jobs that a parent does, um, that was, in my mind, a soccer mom. But this was a new community, a new set of cultural norms and expectations, and soccer mom really wasn't a cultural norm here. And as someone who grew up my entire life feeling different, always trying to make things make sense for me, always adapting, I should have been able to navigate my my new home with much more ease than I did. It was like I learned one lesson and then the next overlapped. So by the time I had fully learned something, I was well into the next thing I needed to learn. It was the unraveling and it didn't stop no matter how fast or slow I pulled. And the thread was unraveling everything that I thought was normal or reality. And I had really been living in this bubble for so long that I couldn't see what I had been missing. What I also learned was being around people who deeply accepted their own heritage, culture, customs. It really pushed me to explore mine. And I had gone to Lexington thinking I was going to go and help these kids when in all reality, they helped me. Their acceptance of their own traditions gave me permission to start looking into my own. Their curiosity about Korea gave me curiosity about Korea. They didn't judge me for wanting to be Korean. They, they encouraged it. And it took being around the black community, Mexican families, and a few new Asian friends who embraced their culture fully to help spur me on to the next part of my unraveling. Um, These were the years that led me honestly to this full acceptance, this fuller really acceptance that I've gotten to now. And if you're in a family where the parents are white and the adoptee kids are not, this is just a reality. You are likely gonna go places where you are subjecting your own children to microaggressions and microaggressions and racism without even knowing. Your child is now at a school or in a family or community where they are likely one of the few non-white people. So they have no choice but to assimilate. 
to suppress their experiences and deny their culture. And I didn't see that and realize the long-term effects that that would have on me until I was a grown adult. Does that mean that you should move and uproot your family? Absolutely not. But educate yourself. Read about racism towards fill in the blank of the place your child or your children are from. Read about their history in America or in the world. Understand what is passed down in DNA so they understand what does come from their blood family. That's a great, easy way to start is just Google. Even if they aren't interested, you should be. It's your child. So that bloodline has to be just as important as your bloodline is to you. And I think the hard part is that this journey of cultural awakening isn't always fully supported for adoptees. Um, In season two, the show will shift and begin spotlighting other adoptees and their unique stories. One of them being um, Kimmy Graves, who I mentioned in episode two. She was the one who sat with me during the worship night at Timberwolf. And I want her to, I want you to hear um, her story from her perspective, but um, she went to Korea and she had this incredible healing experience that anyone would be passionate to share. And as she did, there was a person who completely denied and squashed her experience. And she came back to someone close to her, making fun of her for trying to be reunited with her Korean heritage. And she was devastated. You know, denying parts of who you are inevitably will cause you to deny parts of someone else. Um, I have an Asian middle name, Sanaa. Um, I always felt embarrassed by having this in my name. I even like begged my parents not to name my younger sisters um, with a white middle name and an Asian middle name. And I now regret that and feel sad that I rejected that part of myself. But anyway, um, this was just like another reminder to me that I was other having this like third name. Um, and now I'm, I love it and I'm grateful for it, but it took a long time for me to get there. But had I appreciated and loved that part of me, I likely would, wouldn't have made the racist remarks to those boys about their names at that lunch table. I think right now we're in one of the biggest times of radical change and turmoil in America that I've experienced since being alive. I've read how other folks up their words and experiences who've been around two or three times longer than me are saying the same thing. Um, and there is no doubt that 2020 will be a time that is talked about for all of history. Um, but how it's talked about will make or break the difference. Um, if we deny the truth of how America came to be a world power, then we will deny the truth of people's histories, the brokennesses, the brokenness that they are left with. If um, you've never looked into your family's history, your culture, you will likely never think about someone else's and may in fact think it's not important. You know, it's like if I deny the pain in my own life, I will not on purpose, but deny the pain in your life. And I think this logic infiltrates every aspect of our lives. I have had so many friends have babies over the last five or 10 years, and I never understood why the pregnancy and birth was so hard for me to be a part of. And it wasn't just like, oh, this is hard. It was also like off of my radar. I wasn't even aware of what a momentous and important time it was. It was like I ended up disappearing during that season. And then once the baby was born, I would re-engage. 
but asking about how they're doing with the pregnancy, the gender or the names they were going to pick out. Those weren't things I thought to ask about or even really wanted to know. I mean, I do now, but not towards the beginning of that season of life. And it's so obvious to me now why I didn't. It was because I don't have those stories and it's not something I really thought about until later in life. So not to make an excuse, but because I denied that part of my story, I denied that in my friends. I just became super unavailable. Um, And for those of you in the faith community, or really, this is a really popular verse that whether it's from the Bible or just in conversation, but you've maybe heard the verse about Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And this isn't a new idea, but if you don't love yourself, then you won't be able to love others. And at least not in a deep way, in my opinion. So if you're hard on yourself, you're likely to be hard on others. If you judge yourself, you'll judge others. And I think Jesus said this in almost a command of go to therapy, look inside yourself, do the work so that you can love the creation that I have made you to be. And then you can love the rest of creation I have made as well. Um, You know, I think what I've learned over the last eight years that I cannot understand I cannot understand other people's cultures until I face my own. And in order to do that, I have to remove a lot of biases and assumptions and replace them with information and relationships. I think being in Lexington was probably the most critical time in my adult life. It really deconstructed years of one-way thinking and replaced it with love, understanding, and an openness that truly can only come from the Lord, in my opinion. I remember before I moved, um, I had told someone that I had never lived in a different place other than the place I grew up. And I had felt so accepted and loved and embraced by the time I left Lexington that um, I would continue to say after I had moved, you know, I live in Indiana, but my heart's in Kentucky. And I feel like I will forever be a Cats fan, even if I'm kind of a bandwagoner and I don't even really watch that much. Um, But Lexington will always hold such a special place in my life because of the relationships and the people who were there. Um, Those people that I'm thinking of really helped me embrace and accept who I was and allowed me to be a part of something so special and something I really um, I really took for granted and I miss late nights of nerds and eating at Grand Taco and hanging out with students and leaders at Bryan Station High School and Middle School um, and then Crawford and um, it was just a special time to have such a deep community and a love of people that um, I didn't grow up with and so I just have so much love for Lexington and the people there and I just I really do miss it so much if you've never been I highly recommend you check it out as always thanks again for listening it's always a choice especially right now Um, this moment in our history is so important and I know there are listeners outside of the U.S. and I would love to hear your take on what you think about what is happening here in the States if you're following along. Um, I love a good outside perspective and I welcome it and my email is in the bio so please reach out. Um, Next week's episode is called Everyone Loves an Underdog Story.
and I'm going to talk about kind of the complex that happens as someone who's adopted based on maybe what you've been told growing up that you feel like you're this underdog that has to have this incredible comeback. And so we're going to kind of explore that idea and hear a little bit more about that. So thanks again so much for listening. You can check us out now on Instagram at becoming.chosen and Next week's episode will come out on Wednesday, like usual, um, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So thanks again so much and have a great day.